Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the ongoing provision that you give. And even as we see the title of this song, Holy Manna, we recognize, Father, that you are a God who provides for our every need. Forgive us for the times that we fail to recognize your provision or are ungrateful for your provision, whether that be in our practical lives, our spiritual lives, or even in our marriages, as we talk about that today. Lord, help us to see you and to to embrace your works and your ways. Continue to transform us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you today. I bet that if I were to ask you about your perceptions or ideas about marriage, that I would probably get a lot of different answers based on your personal experience. For those of you that are married, based on your marriages or based on your assessment of your spouse. I'd get a lot of different answers based on the marriage of your parents that you've witnessed. And I'd even get different answers based on the age demographic that you fall into. Younger would answer differently than older. And those of you that come from divorced homes would answer differently than those of you who have come from more healthy experiences. When we think about marriage... We recognize that there are few topics in this life that are so foundational in their nature while at the same time being so very urgent in their nature. I mean, think about it with me. Marriage, healthy marriages are the foundation for healthy families. And we know that healthy families are the building blocks of a healthy society. So if a marriage isn't healthy, you can see how society as a whole, can begin to crumble in certain types of ways. This topic is an urgent topic for us, and it's always urgent because there's been no society in history that's held marriage in high enough esteem. No society that has continued to promote the importance or to secure healthy marriages in an aggressive enough fashion. And in our society, we actually see the exact opposite happening, don't we? We see an ongoing and intentional erosion of this institution of marriage and even a redefining of the legal boundaries of it in our country. I've entitled this morning's message, The First Marriage and Your Marriage. And I entitled it that because we see here in Genesis chapter 2, from the very beginning, God designed this unique part of our lives And the first marriage informs many, many things about our marriages today. And so I want to ask you to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 2. And today we're going to look at verses 18 through 25. If you're new here today or if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we've started this new series called Beyond Repair. And the last few weeks we've seen how God has created the world by the power of his word And how people were formed in his very image. And that bestows upon them an inherent value and worth that is unlike any of the social constructs that we have today. Now we get to the part of the story where God not only creates Eve, the woman, but he institutes this very first marriage. So look with me at chapter 2, verse 18. This is what it says. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to see, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is at last the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I have three goals this morning for our time together. The first goal is for those of you who are not married but want to be. I want to, I want to instruct you from this text on the type of person you should be looking for, and the type of relationship that you should strive for in that marriage dynamic. Secondly, for those of you who are married and for whose marriages are going well, I want to simply encourage you to keep going. What you are involved in is something given to you by God for his glory and for your good. So keep going. And thirdly, for those of you who are here today, who are married, but it's not going well. I want to exhort you to hang in there. Because for you too, don't give up. This text has specific calling for you as you understand the importance of this relationship that God has brought you into. And we'll do this instruction, this encouragement, this exhortation by looking at four ways that marriage is glorifying to God. We see at least four here in Genesis chapter 2. And since marriage is glorifying to God, and part of your purpose in this life is to glorify God, then it stands to reason, if marriage is glorifying to God, then it's good for you. <laughs> marriage is glorifying to God, so it is good for you. And we see that in four ways. The first way is found in the relational dynamics that happen around this forming of Eve and their marriage covenant. Look with me at verse 18. The Lord God is looking over his creation, and he says from the very beginning, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The relational dynamic at play here was loneliness. God said, it's not good that he should be alone. Now you can only imagine what type of loneliness this was. It was physical in nature. It was emotional in nature. But it is clear that from the very beginning, part of God's image in this man, Adam, was the fact that he was relationally driven as a person. Relationality is part of who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what your disposition is, no matter what your personality type is. This is part of who you are. It mirrors the image of God himself, a relational God who functions not only in relationship with his creation, but also in relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's another element of relational dynamic here that 
we see from the very beginning. And that is that God created Eve to be the helper of her husband. Verse 18, he says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Verse 21, or verse 20, excuse me, there was not a helper fit for him among all of creation. Now when I talk about that, I know that this becomes a very, very quickly becomes a hot button topic for our society. Because it points to the fact that men and women designed from the very beginning had different roles and Men here were created as the leader of their families and women in a support role. So before I go any further, let's just stop and pause and recognize that that causes some of us to bristle a little bit. So what I want to do is I want to show you from this text how that is actually true, that men and women formed from the beginning have different roles, equal value, mind you, but different roles. And if you still struggle with that by the end of our time together today, if you still are thinking to yourself, darn you, Nick, I don't want to hear that, then come back in a couple weeks and we'll talk about why that is so difficult for us as we get on farther down in this book of Genesis. There's a complementary fashion in which God makes husband and wife. And we see this, that Adam is the leader of his family, in a few different ways in this passage. Look at it with me. The very created order itself points to the fact that Adam is the leader. Now, I know that created order or birthing order doesn't mean as much to us in this society today, but throughout history, and particularly in the ancient world, the firstborn among a family has a unique and special role of leadership within that family. And therefore, Adam's order here points to that leadership. Number two, the fact that Adam ain't named Eve points to his leadership. In this respect, Adam is functioning as God's vice regent over creation. Think about it for me for a minute. God exercises his own authority by his word in naming things. And as he creates them, he names them. He separates the day and the night, and he names them as such. He separates the heavens from the earth as sky and land, and he names them as such. And now, as we move on through creation, God gets to this place where he bestows this same type of authority onto Adam, and he says, Adam, now it's your role. You function in my place in exercising this same type of authority, and I want you to name all of the fish and all of the birds and all of the animals. And I even want you to name this woman. And you can imagine what it must have been like for him. Animal after animal, livestock after livestock, bird after bird, as he's trying to think about what to call them. And God puts him in this deep sleep, and he does not give a sort of Neanderthal grunt as he sees the woman and whacks her over the head. God presents her to him. And as the emotion wells up, as he sees this beautiful, beautiful creation that God has made, he responds in poetic fashion. Verse 23. This 
at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The one who names is the one who leads. And in this respect, Adam is leading Eve. The third way we see Adam's leadership exercised here in a complementary fashion of the roles is the fact that Eve, the woman, is called very directly a helper. Verse 18. And this underscores the fact that God gave her a specific charge to come alongside of him in his calling and his vocation in working the garden. It's a submissive role, but it's not a demeaning role. And of course, we've all seen throughout our experience how sometimes these roles work wonderfully and beautifully in complementarity. And we've also seen abuses of this very same idea. I think of the story of the man who had finished reading the book, Man of the House, while commuting home from work. And when he got home from work, he stormed into the house and he walked up to his wife and he pointed his finger in, his face, in her face and he said, from now on, I want you to know that I am the man of this house. And my word is law. You are to prepare me a gourmet meal tonight. And when I'm finished eating my meal, I expect a sumptuous dessert afterward. And after dinner, you're going to draw me a bath so I can relax. And when I'm finished with my bath, guess who's going to dress me and comb my hair? And the wife, rather befuddled, stood there and stared at him. And after a long pause, said, well, my guess is the funeral director. (laughs) We've all seen abuses of God's design. And they're, they're all too horrific in circumstance and even comical in effect. And yet we see nevertheless that it is his design that He's given men and women different roles in their marriage and their families. Men, know that the type of leadership that you provide for your family is important. Don't avoid it. Again and again and again, we see men abdicating their role or abusing their authority. Know that exercising care and love in leading is the way that God calls for you. Ladies, Know that you have a real opportunity to help your husband in all kinds of ways, practical and spiritual. And how you relate to him can help him fulfill the role of his God-given vocation. And it will also, at the very same time, be tremendously beneficial to you. Marriage glorifies God. And it's good for you. There's a second and unique aspect of this and how marriage glorifies God. And that is found in the fact that marriage is a covenant by nature. A covenant. A covenant is an agreement or a binding promise. And this means that the marriage of Adam and Eve from the very beginning is one that's not based on emotion, it's not based on romance, 
It was based on action-oriented, sacrificial love for each other in a relationship that was binding in nature. Now, throughout the Bible, there are all kinds of covenants that we see. Many of the covenants are horizontal. They're from people to people, nation to nation, family to family. If you do this, I will do this. These are the benefits. These are the consequences. It's a binding agreement. It's a contract. Some of the covenants, even the more important covenants, are from between God and humans, right? God says, if you do this, I will do this. And then there are some that are like marriage, even one of the most significant kinds of covenants, because it is both horizontal and vertical, or vertical and horizontal in nature. It is between two people. It's not a mere contract between two people, however, or a mere agreement. It is between those two people with each other and those two individuals with the person of God himself. Look with me at verse 24. This is where we find this. After Eve is presented before him, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Departing from one family and forming another is a form of covenant making. And here, the second part of this verse, we see this word, to hold fast. They shall leave and hold fast together. Or some of your translations might say cleave. Should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That word, to hold fast or to cleave, means specifically to unite to someone through a binding promise or an oath. That is a covenant. Your marriage functions in this way as a Christian. Malachi chapter 2 verse 14 tells a man that his spouse is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Proverbs 2.17 chastises a wife for leaving the companion of her youth and forgetting the covenant of God. And so if your marriage is a covenant, if it is both material and spiritual in nature, you can imagine the weight of this in your very relationship with God. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, breaking faith with your spouse is to break faith with God at the same time. That's why we have vows at Christian weddings. This is why the promises that are expressed in these weddings, yes, are directed to each other, and yes, are directed to God. That is why historically Christians have gotten married in churches. And we know the building isn't magical in nature. God doesn't live here. He's ever-present. But the building is a gathering place, and symbolically the gathering place of his people for an act of worship. And the covenant-making of a husband and wife is an act of worship. Practically, what this means for Christians is that we're very careful with who we enter into this type of covenant with. If there's such great spiritual implications for us, then we work hard to make our marriages work at all costs. Young people, those of you that want to get married someday, Know that good looks and sexual attraction and even a strong dose of romance are not reasons enough to marry a person. 
Why? Because those things are not strong enough to keep you married. What is strong enough to keep you married and what is a good reason to marry someone? A covenant, a binding commitment to another person. When two people say, I'm going to put God first and my relationship with him first and this means that we can make promises to each other. That type of of binding commitment in God's plan calls upon God's power and his priorities to keep you married. And you know, knowing that divorce is not an option, with the exception of two instances we see in the Bible, is actually an incredibly freeing reality. Knowing that divorce is not an option is really freeing to you. People, our culture would tell you the exact opposite. You should be free If this thing isn't going the right way, then get out. You're free. Well, you know what's even more free? (laughs) Knowing that divorce isn't an option. How so, you say? Well, think about it. If you walk into your marriage with a framework of, I'm going to do whatever I can do to make this work, and things start to go bad, now you're trapped within the four walls of your house with this other person that you don't like for the moment, and they don't like you for the moment, and you only have two options. There's no doorway to get out. So what are you going to do? Option number one, you live with the status quo, which seems pretty terrible at the moment. Or option number two, you work really hard and you humble yourself to sacrificially love this person that you don't like at the moment and see how God works in your very midst. And it's a freeing reality because you don't have to think through all these variety of exit plans and options and then deal with all the hurt and fallout in the long run that comes from that type of crumbling, you actually get to move structurally through a path of healing and health all because you have this binding commitment to one another. I'm so glad that in God's design, he makes the deepest relationships that we have in this life to be defined by the deepest form of covenant in this life. And this glorifies him. Marriage glorifies God. And so it is good for you. There's a third aspect here of how marriage glorifies God. And this is found, again, in Genesis 2.24, in the making of one flesh. Look with me. Genesis 2.24 is this wonderful and mysterious description of what happens when two people get married. It says, Therefore they shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, And they shall become one flesh. Clearly, God takes a commitment that's formal and practical and spiritual, and then he adds to it a physical and emotional component. Becoming one flesh is what happens through a sexual relationship with another person. And it's more than just physically pleasing in its nature. Sex engages us in a deeper emotional and spiritual way as well. Now for years, our culture has been promoting a common practice of sex before marriage or outside of marriage. And unfortunately, even some of us as Christians have fallen into that temptation. And we know that those relationships in which their sexual activity are deeper in their nature. They have to be, don't they? And we know that those relationships that are sexually active, when they then break up, are much more painful 
and the sort of path of difficulty and pain and dysfunction and devastation that follows is something that can, can take for some of us years to heal from. Why is that? That is because sex was designed to be part of a more substantial commitment, a binding covenant. And as such, when you engage in sex outside of that covenant, you're actually hurting yourself by taking something that God has made for your good and abusing it. 1 Corinthians gets to this reality. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians to a bunch of Christians who, well, we'll just say they have very loose sexual ethics. And he says to them in chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute, becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Likewise, Jesus is arguing against the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19 against the idea of divorce. And he cites Genesis 2.24 as well. The Pharisees say, is it lawful for us to divorce anyone or one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Did you get that? What God has joined together. There's a spiritual reality that happens in the context of a sexual relationship. It's wonderful. It's mysterious. It's an act of God. And if that's true then play for the implications. Then your sexual relationship inside of your marriage is incredibly glorifying to him. So much so that there's a spiritual component to it. He didn't just give it to you for physical pleasure. He does something even deeper than that. And your sexual relationship outside of marriage is incredibly offensive to him. And he calls you to turn back. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, underscores this idea of God himself being right in the middle of this one flesh union that happens in marriage. God's rebuking the Israelite people for leaving the wives of their youth. And he's speaking through this prophet Malachi. And he talks about his role of bringing them together. This is what the prophet says. Did he, God, that is, did God not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wives of your youth. A portion of his spirit in the one flesh union. Ephesians 5 Reminds us that because you are of one flesh with your spouse, then therefore, when you take care of your spouse, you actually take care of yourself. The logic's clear, right? 
you were two, you became one, but that other spouse is part of you now, one flesh, and therefore you take care of that flesh. You take care of yourself. He says this, in the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Caring for your spouse, and here specifically, husbands, loving your wives is a way of also taking care of your own flesh. What does it all mean? You pan through the Bible and you see this one flesh dynamic that's glorifying to God. What it means is that if you are not married, wait to have sex until you're married. And let me even say it another way. If you're not married, save yourself for the one to whom which you will get married. God has designed this as a wonderful, profound, mysterious part of this unique union between a husband and wife. A number of years ago, there was a talk show, a daytime talk show, that had as a guest a well-known actor who was known uh, for his romance roles in film. And as true to form in daytime television, the host asked him the smutty question, what makes a great lover? Everyone who was watching, I'm sure, expected some kind of macho playboy response. But to the surprise of the host and the audience, and to raised eyebrows for anybody watching, this was his response. It was something like this. He said, a great lover is someone who can satisfy one woman all her life long and who can be satisfied by one woman all his life long. A great lover is not someone who goes from woman to woman to woman. Any dog can do that. If you're married, don't underestimate this part of your union. Ongoing regular sex is part of a healthy marriage, and I understand the dynamic that the allure of risk or the process of discovery changes over time, and that's not part of the sexual relationship for those of us who've been married for a long time. But you know what? It's actually replaced by something better. It's replaced by a desire to please this other person that you are in committed, loving relationship with. I can tell you, as a person who talks to couples who are struggling with some regularity. There are themes that we see emerge. Healthy marriages and unhealthy marriages. And some of the biggest points of friction in married life is around the sexual intimacy between husband and wife. It's just plain fact. Whether that is engagement or frequency or a variety of issues. And we know, we know that we are being bombarded with images all the time in a highly sexualized culture. We know that in a healthy relationship there needs to be uh, emotional engagement that leads up to and comes out of a sexual relationship. But just know, this part of your union is important. Don't underestimate its importance. It's not surprising though, is it? Because in our marriage, God actually makes us one flesh. 
and designs us for this type of union. Marriage glorifies God. And so it's good for you. There's a fourth aspect, and I will move quickly through this one, of how your marriage glorifies God. And that is marriage is a visual representation of the gospel. In a couple weeks, we're going to talk about how sin came into the world. We're going to talk about why marriages got so hard and why they still are so hard in certain ways. And it's fitting that the solution for the difficulty of marriage is the same solution for all of our sin issues. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5 points to the reality that you learn about the gospel actually more and more in the context of your marriage. Ephesians 5 tells us, husbands, that you have a role and it's to mirror the Lord Jesus as he loves for and sacrifices for his church, his bride. And ladies, that you have a role as you mirror the church, as you submit to and respect your husband, just like the church does to Jesus. Your greatest covenant in this life your marriage covenant, teaches you about God's greatest covenant, the new covenant in his son in which he saves you. These point to some of these greatest realities. That God did this for us by Jesus coming to sacrifice on our behalf. Men, you are called to do something that's nearly impossible for you to do. To sacrifice yourself, even be willing to die for this woman that God has joined you to. And that the church would follow Jesus and that, ladies, you are called to do something that is incredibly difficult for you to do. And that is to submit yourself to this man that God has joined you to, even when you don't want to sometimes. But it comes in the mirroring effect that God did this for us through the person of Jesus. He came and sacrificed on our behalf, even though we didn't deserve it. And he forgives us and provides for us and loves us. And conversely, that we did not want to give up our own will and our own way and surrender ourselves to him. But we did, by his grace, have our eyes to open, come to realize that we need him. And our marriage is a reflection of that very gospel. And it teaches you about the gospel. And that increases over time. Some of you here have been married for a very long time. Amy and I have been married for 15 years. And I can honestly say over the course of our 15 years, we have gone through phases in our marriage. And I can see more and more how marriage teaches me about the gospel the longer that we're married to each other. I love the way that Philip Yancey expresses this. He and his wife on their 25th wedding anniversary talked about these types of phases. He said, before marriage... Each person by instinct strives to be what the other wants. The young woman desires to look sexy and takes up interest in sports. Amy didn't do that part. I mean, the sexy part was no problem. The sports part, she missed that memo. The young man notices plants and flowers and works at asking questions instead of answering monosyllabically. Phase two, after marriage, the process slows and somewhat reverses. Each insists on his or her own rights. 
each resists bending their will to the other person. But after years, the process may subtly begin to reverse again. Nancy's wife writes, I sense a new willingness to bend back toward what the other wants, maturely this time. Not out of a desire to catch a maid, but out of a desire to please a man who has shared a quarter century of life. And I grieve for those couples who give up before reaching that stage. Marriage glorifies God. And it's good for you. We set out at the beginning to encourage you in your desire to get married or to keep pursuing health in the marriage that you have or not to give up when things are difficult because it glorifies God and because it's good for you. And so let me leave you with this charge this morning. This is a charge for both men and wife, but maybe especially for men. Men, make sure you help your wife know that she is an eight-cow woman. Let me explain. I love the old story of an isolated Pacific island where it was the custom when the young man wanted to propose marriage, he would announce his intention to the whole village. And he and the whole village would head to the home of the young woman. Her father would come outside and then in front of the community, the father and the suitor would begin to barter. Clearly there were no feminists on the island. And the main items of value on this island were cows. Therefore, the suitor would offer the father a certain number of cows for his daughter. The average bride was worth two cows, perhaps three if she was unusually bright or attractive. The all-time record was four cows. The most eligible bachelor on the island was was a man named Johnny Lingo. How cool is that name, by the way? Johnny Lingo was handsome. He was wealthy. And imagine all the excitement that went through the village as word got out that Johnny Lingo had announced that he was going to get married. He shocked everyone in the village by announcing that his choice for a wife was a girl named Lisa. Lisa was not in the top ten. She was known as plain and frightfully shy. And some of the jokers in the crowd suggested that maybe Lisa's father should give Johnny a cow or two instead of the other way around. But the community gathered at Lisa's house for the bartering. And then came the even greater shock. Johnny's opening bid for Lisa was eight cows. Her father almost fainted. But he managed to gain composure and to say yes. And that very evening, Johnny and Lisa were married and they departed for their home on an adjacent island. Nobody saw Johnny or Lisa for a year. And on their one-year anniversary, they returned to the island to visit their parents and the grapevine of the village went ballistic with the gossip. Johnny and Lisa are back. Come to the dock and see Johnny and Lisa. Everybody gather around and see Johnny and Lisa. And everybody came. But nobody noticed Johnny. All eyes were on Lisa. 
She had been transformed. She was a vision of loveliness. She was poised. She was warm. She was friendly. And she was confident. And at the end of the day, as Johnny and Lisa were preparing to return to their home, one of Johnny's longtime friends pulled him aside and he said, I want to know the secret of this incredible transformation in Lisa. How did it happen? And Johnny said, well, I tell you. From the time that Lisa was born, she had been treated as though she was not worth very much. And she began to believe that about herself. I announced to the whole community that she was worth eight cows. And I have treated her the very same way. She has become the vision of herself that she sees every day in my eyes. Friends, if you want an eight-cow wife or husband, you have to catch a vision for that first and then treat him or her that very same way. God, the change agent, the master of change agents, produces in this one flesh union, in this binding covenant, this eight-cow wife or husband that you envision. Marriage is glorifying to God, and it's good for you. Guys, as you go home today, make sure that you let that lady know that she is an eight-cow wife. But even more than that, treat her like an eight-cow wife. Let's pray. Father, in all of the joy and enrichment and in all of the difficulty of our marriage relationships, we thank you and we praise you. These are incredible and profound things that you have instituted. Whether that's a covenant or a one flesh dynamic or a reflection of the gospel or a unique complementarity, God, you and your perfect will and perfect ways have done it again. And we worship you. I pray for help. I pray for the marriages of Old North Church, Lord, that you would strengthen them, that you would bolster them in the truths of your scripture, that you would help them in their practical interaction, that you would grow them in intimacy and in partnership for the many days, weeks, months, and years ahead. To you be the glory as marriages here flourish. Amen.